Good morning. Welcome to Southland City Church. How's everybody doing? Yeah, that's good. Anybody go to the USC game last night? Yeah, you feeling good about that? You still cold? If you're not feeling good about the outcome of last night's game, uh, that might be the one thing that would just like be the line in the sand for this community and you may not be welcome here. Otherwise, <laughs> we don't care where you've come from, what you believe or don't believe or how you're showing up today, but please be a fighting Irish fan. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> Uh, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount as a teaching series, which is Jesus' core teachings in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to pause that today for another topic that I promised you that we were going to get to. Uh, you'll see where we're going uh, first in introduction. I was in grad school studying theology a few years ago, and one of the courses I was really excited to take was a course on the Apostle Paul. If you know the New Testament at all, you, you might know that Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. And not only did Paul write a lot of the New Testament, but some of the things that Paul wrote in the New Testament, they're actually the earliest texts in the, in the New Testament. And so the biographies of Jesus' life, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written later than some of the earliest letters that Paul wrote that we have. So if, if you were trying to get your hands on like the heart of the movement that has been working through the world for 2,000 years, if you're trying to go back to its origins, you're gonna wanna take a look at Paul. Now, I don't know about your relationship with Paul's letters, if you've read them or not, or if you have feelings about Paul or his letters or not. I find that people tend to have a lot of complicated feelings about Paul and some of the things that he has written in our Bibles. But I was excited about it because some of the highlights in Paul's letters are so profound and compelling. And I was there in grad school, not just as an academic exercise, but because I really want to get my hands on the heartbeat, on, on the energy of this movement, on the origins of this thing that has been working through the world for thousands of years. And some of those texts that I find so inspiring in the Bible, some of like the theological heights, the mountaintops in the scripture I, I find in Paul's letters because Paul says things like this in Romans 8. I'll put it on the screen here for you. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now before we go any further, Paul has actually experienced all of those things. He's not speaking theoretically or naively. He's a person who has suffered persecution, famine, hardship, nakedness, the sword. And from that experience, he has the gall to say, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him, through him who loved us. He goes on. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, whether you believe that or not, it's clear Paul believed this in spite of all of his suffering. And so I'm going into the class wanting to understand what experience shaped this perspective for this person because it seems revolutionary and radical. He is obsessed with the love of God. He writes about it in a letter to the Ephesians here on the screen. He says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He goes on, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That line, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Like, that's not dogma. That transcends dogma. That's something, like, mystical that he is describing and believing. I mean, like, whatever, whatever's going on here, Paul has had an encounter with a mystery that has like shaken him and he is now moving out into the world saying radical things. And you, it's possible that the, this vision of the love of God and what God has done in Christ and how he's met that activity in Christ or how Paul says what he says, for example, in the book of Colossians, another letter, where we read him saying to a church, you've taken off your old self with its practices and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now these lines like Gentile and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, I mean, these are categories that have divided the ancient world religiously, ethnically, politically, 
economically, right? And he says something has happened, perhaps in this love that we are encountering, that is obliterating those lines that have divided us. And at least in this community, somehow we are being drawn together into a kind of human community that as far as I understand the history of our species had never existed on planet Earth before this movement called the early church. And that's not just like some Christian propaganda. I think if you read good historians from any persuasion, they will tell you something happened 2,000 years ago to give birth to a radical new kind of community of human belonging. And Paul would tell you the thing that happened is the love of God broke into our lives through our experience of the Christ, right? So I'm in grad school and I'm like, I would like to study that. <laughs> that sounds worthwhile. I would like to know more about that. I would like to get my hands on not just these texts, but our understanding of the person behind these texts. And maybe something about learning all of this will help my own life move further into those depths that he talks about, about the love of God and the power of God working through our lives and the kind of community that we, we can be together. And so I go into this course very excited. And on the first day of the class, the professor is talking to us about some of the papers that we will have to write for, the, for this course. And these are like, you know, really robust grad school papers we're gonna to have to write, meaning we're gonna to have to spend many, many, many hours up in the stacks on the 12th and 13th floor of the library among the theology books writing these, these very robust papers. And at first I'm excited about that because if the, if the paper writing is gonna take me further into those mysteries that I just told you about, I would like to do that. And then the professor tells us what our first paper will be. And he says, I would like you to write a paper on Paul's approach to fundraising. <laughs> I know, right? I like, you could hear the horn, like the wah, wah. <laughs> like the air got let out of the room. I was frustrated at first. I was like, I didn't come here to read like books about Paul's approach to fundraising. I came here for the mystery, man. I came here for the life of God being worked out among everyday people. And then two things strike me. First of all, my professor makes the point, like those same letters that speak from the heights of like mystical vision and theological power, those same letters, if you look elsewhere in the letter, it turns out they're fundraising letters. <laughs> like some of what Paul is doing through these letters is like saying thank you for financial gifts that were given or exhorting people to make financial gifts. Like they live there side by side. And the other thing that strikes me in this class is that one of the reasons I feel so compelled by this work that I'm doing right here and the work that we are doing together as a church community is on my best days I remember that all the heights of theology and mystical experience, like the mystery of God, the love of God, that, that we don't get to access those things apart from the nitty-gritty realities of our actual everyday lives, right? Like, that's actually how it goes. Like, the mystery is lurking, like, right next to your budget and the dirty dishes and the hard night that you've been having getting the kids put to bed. Like, all the kind of, like, very earthy-feeling things that we might see as an inconvenience or an impediment to this beautiful life with God, knowing the love of God that we long for? Well, actually, those are the places where, where we get to encounter these things. And so, like, one thing I love about church and one thing I hate about church is it's the place where we try to find all those ethereal, joyful, mountaintop things meeting us in the, like, grit and reality of our everyday lives. And the grit and reality of everyday lives does include things like budgets and money, right? So today, um, I want to take a break from the Sermon on the Mount stuff and fulfill a promise that I made to you earlier this fall. And what I told you earlier this fall is that we were going to take a day sometime and just like talk a little bit about like church and giving and money. Now, I know some of you brought friends to church for the first time today and you're already thinking you cashed it in on the wrong day. Don't worry, I think this is going to go better than you think. Uh, others might be feeling some baggage. I get it. I think this is going to go better than you think. Uh, but we want to talk about it a little bit. One of the reasons we want to talk about it is if you've been following with us the last couple of months, you do know that we are trying to contemplate our future physical home as a community. Uh, if you've not been following that, the Cliff's Notes version is this. Our lease on this space ends in June of 2023, and we have more recently learned uh, that we will likely not have any option to stay in this physical space. And I know that's a bit of a gut punch uh, because a lot of us have a real affection for this room. It's become home for us in many ways. Uh, a lot of us have had experiences here in this room that have been healing or redemptive. And those memories have a way of sort of feeling the atmosphere when you walk in here, don't they? So we feel all of that. And yet it's one of the realities that we are navigating. And so what we're looking at is the possibility of either moving elsewhere in this Studebaker development or buying and renovating a building elsewhere, like possibly the Tribune Printing Press building downtown. So hopefully that's not news. We've been talking about this for a while. 
But I told you last week, um, it's probably the case that whatever we do, whether we move to elsewhere in Studebaker or by the Tribune building, or like whatever our future looks like in terms of a physical home, there'll probably be some fundraising involved to make that possible, and that future probably looks like a combination of whatever money we all wanna give up front alongside a mortgage in any of those scenarios. And as our team has been thinking about that likely future, it struck us that we've like never really talked about uh, like church and theology and giving around here. Like anybody remember the last sermon I preached on like giving in the church? That's right, because there isn't one. <laughs> it's not that you don't remember. I mean literally in the history of Southland City Church, I don't know that we have ever like tried to lay down a bit of a baseline philosophically, theologically, culturally for like how Southland City Church would approach these things. And um, the reasons behind that are, are mostly good, but the outcome isn't. Much of why we haven't talked about it is we're just painfully aware that there is such deep baggage around church and money. Like, we know that. Uh, a couple of examples. Somebody who came to our church new a little while ago asked one of our team members, do you need my W-2 form? This is serious. You know the W-2, that thing at the end of the year where your employer tells you how much they paid you and you use it to pay taxes? And our team member said, why would we possibly need your W-2 form? And they told us quite seriously that the last church community they were a part of required members to submit their W-2 so the church could prove they were giving enough out of their income or not. Yeah, that's, I know, that's real, right? Like, and shocking for many of us who haven't had quite that experience. But we're aware that there's some pain here, right? Uh, some of us have seen, like, in the headlines or maybe in the communities that we've been a part of, we've seen pastors living quite large, and it makes you wonder, like, wait, is, is that coming from the dollars that, like, everyday people give for them to have, like, three houses and a private jet? And is it coincidental that those seem to often be the preachers who talk the most about how what you give will, like, prove your faith and do good things for you? Right? Like, we can feel some of that there. Um, there's also just the experience of, like, manipulative services, right? Like, where you're in a church service and the emotions are high and you can tell that the team has, you know, taken advantage of everything they have in the environment and all the tools they can use to stir you. And then at the climax, at the peak moment of inspiration, there's an ask. And it's not that you would just go out there and radically love your neighbor. And it's not just that you would take a stand against injustice in the world. The ask is, would you please write a big old check to this church? Because that's how we will know that you are faithful to Jesus. That does happen sometimes. And because of all that baggage, we've been afraid of talking about it. But I'm not proud of the fact that we haven't talked about it because around here, we try to be really mindful of the baggage that we are carrying on any number of fronts, but that doesn't mean we don't talk about stuff. In other areas of our church life, other questions, other topics, other issues, we try to be mindful of, of all the different experiences that we are walking in here with, but we don't not talk about stuff because that's not healthy, that's actually dysfunctional. Right? When there's an elephant in the room or some hidden aspect of our life together that we're not talking about, it's not a good thing or a holy thing or a productive thing to not talk about it. And so I actually uh, believe that I owe this community an apology. Uh, that it's just like a, a blind spot in my own personal leadership and it's something that I have failed to do. And some things are on me and I haven't done it. And I wanna fix some of that today. But I wanna do it in a way that I think will surprise you. I think you will hear some things said today about church church finances, giving, and generosity that you probably haven't heard before. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna do at least one thing in this sermon that I, I there's still like 5% of me that thinks I'm an idiot for doing it, but I'm gonna do it, and we'll just see what happens. Because I just, I wanna tell you the truth, I wanna be candid, I want us to have like an adult conversation about this. And everything I have ever learned about South and City Church is that we are up for that kind of thing. So that's what I would like to do. However, first, I think we should air out some of the feelings in the room. Um, because your experiences are valid and they're part of this conversation. And so I thought we would do like a little open floor action. And first, I just wanna ask, when I tell you that today the pastor's gonna talk about like church and generosity and church finances, anybody have any negative feelings or experiences that are coming to mind? Would anybody like to say a word or two about that? Yes, sir. Bad experiences with expectations, uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, like uh, the expectations are on you to give in certain ways. Yeah, anybody relate to that? Expectations? Yeah. What about back here? I remember growing up from a church that had a very transactional relationship with God, and if you gave a 10% faithful giving, then you were, God had to bless you. Uh huh. And so, so very transactional, very little grace and mercy. 
I think that's a really good word for it. He, he was saying, if you didn't hear it, that he grew up in a church that had a very transactional relationship with God. So if you give 10%, then like God's on the hook to do stuff for you. But if you don't, he's not. It's very transactional. Yeah, anybody relate to that word transactional? Yeah, what else? Any other negative stuff you all want to share? So let me get that far so they hear you. Um, a lot of hurt around the think, thinking that the money you were giving was going directly to meet needs and to help things, and there wasn't transparency, so only later you found out that it was actually just being invested, kind of like stockpiled. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, anybody have some version of that where you thought your money was going toward one thing, and then it, it turns out like it wasn't doing the good you thought it was doing in the world? Yeah, a few of you. What else, any other negative experiences? Yeah, in front of you. Experience was if you were giving 10%, it opened the door. You got to participate in leadership and other areas. It gained access. And if you weren't, the door is closed. Yep. Mm. Uh, back there, I think I saw a hand. Yeah. Very much a similar thing. And not just that you weren't invited, but you weren't allowed to. Unless mm -hmm. you gave 10 you really weren't allowed to participate. Oh, the, le the, the, the tiers of leadership were literally predicated on how much you were giving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What else? Yeah. If I could summarize it, it's the problematic belief that your divine worth is attached mm. to what you're giving and what you're asking in terms of monetary yeah. uh, support for a church community. And I, I think that's what's a problematic belief mm -hmm. because our divine worth or the belief of our divine worth should never be transaction. Yeah. The feeling that your divine worth is attached to how much you're giving. You somehow like verify your worth by giving and if you're not giving, you don't have that worth in the community. That and also asking. And asking. With a need that it requires oh. uh, tithing or Right. So if you bring a need and you need to ask for a need to be met. Either way. Yeah. That either the request for funds mm -hmm. to help out the church community as a leader or as a member of the community or even giving, yeah. and the amount of that is, is, uh, has a direct effect on your divine worth. So yes. either asking for monetary funds or giving monetary funds, either way, the subtraction and added addition it. of it is directly correlated with divine worth. So both, there's a correlation from the asking with need and with the giving to divine worth. And you're, and, and you're preaching a good word when you say, but that's not where divine worth comes from, right. but there's a real disconnect there. Yeah, that's your bad. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? Well, if I'm not missing a hand, I want to move to one other uh, way to open the floor up. Uh, first of all, thank you all for sharing that stuff. That stuff is so real. And, um, and by the way, I think a lot of what I hear in that is it just seems like, oh, man, the money is the place where the church stops acting in a way that's consistent with the things that we preach, right? Um, that being said... That's not the only set of experiences in the room, and I do wanna like, give a chance for a moment to air out the other end of it. Uh, does anybody have a word, a feeling, or an experience on the positive side of this conversation? Uh, anybody wanna share something positive that you feel right now as, as I tell you that we're gonna talk about this stuff today? Yeah. Nice. Uh, Mariah's talking about our, our affordable housing partnership with Hope. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, so if you're, if you're not aware, uh, Christmas offering, gosh, a couple years ago now, one of the things that we got to do was partner with Hope Ministries and buy a house to make housing accessible for people who are transitioning out of Hope's programs. Yeah, right on. Thanks. What else? Yeah. Oh, wow. At a church before where the pastor really needed a new car and he was gone for a week and while he was gone, the church took a collection and got him a car. Man, that's a great story. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. What else? Yeah, back, back there. Well, I think it's more of 
Oh, I love that. So it was meaningful for you to watch your parents be generous in church growing up, and then for you to get to be a part of that with them, and that was a way of learning how to live a generous life. I love it. There's another hand back here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last decade as the president of the Elkhart County Community Foundation. And I have the privilege of seeing people express great joy because of their ability to be generous. Nice. That's right. I'm going to say it again just for the podcast, but uh, Pete was saying that he spent much of your career in resource development in the last decade, is that right, at the Elkhart County Community Foundation? And you mentioned just seeing the joy that people have when they get to give, when they're able to write those checks. Yeah. Thank you. What else? Yeah, yeah. You know, so last week, my friend who works uh, for foster care, she, she, she said, look, we've got this, this biological family. She needs help to keep her kids safe so they don't have to go into foster care. Who can get her a bunk bed? Like, <laughs> done. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, would I know what she needed? Would I have that connection? No, but my friend did. Yep. And so I just love when people are honest with this is what we need. Nice. Yeah, I also, I think the season of life thing is really insightful there, right? Michelle was saying that she's been in both sides of the continuum where there's been times in your life where you had more time to give and not as much, much money, and then another season where you don't have a lot of time to give right now, but you have resources that you can share, and there's a joy in being on both sides of that. And right now, a friend in foster care work mentioned that uh, keep kids safe, uh, some bunk beds would be really helpful, and to be able to be the person who says, we can cover that, is really joyful for you. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, Pam? Mm-hmm. So I've seen the, the ugliness, but I've also been a beneficiary of, like, hmm. um, especially one time <clears throat> in particularly, um, a single mom, and I had cancer, and I had, didn't have, I had lost my job as mm-hmm. well. That's just because it was fading out. Um, and the church took care of me. Hmm. Not my family, hmm. the church. I didn't have to ask. I didn't even ask them for anything. Hmm. They just came in. They took me to every chemotherapy. I love, um, Pam's ta- if you didn't hear it, Pam was talking about a time in her life, single mother with cancer, and it was the church that took care of her, not her family. And um, it's something to be on the receiving end of that, isn't it? And then also to get to be on the giving end of those things. Yeah, it's humbling. Yeah. 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 So I started tithing at a really dark time in my life. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it actually changed my relationship with money. Oh, wow. Let me get that far. Uh, she was mentioning she started tithing. And by the way, we're going to talk about tithing a little bit later, if that's a strange word for some of you. But started tithing uh, at a time when there wasn't a lot of money in your life. But then you found that, like, your resource picture grew. Um, and it changed your relationship with your money. Yeah, say more about that. Um, hard to explain, but I, I wasn't a big spender growing up. Mm. Interesting, yeah. It, it allows me to just give and not have to worry if I'm going to need that money in the future. Hmm, interesting. So, like, you're not in general a big spender, yes. but something about this giving discipline, is it kind of, like, loosens your grip a little bit and let yeah, it kind of flow yeah. through you a little more so you can take care of other people or right. give gifts or, yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, anybody else have maybe, like, one more on the positive side if you want? Yeah, Butch. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, so a, a time in Butch's life where there was an alignment between like your trust in God, your trust in the church community you were part of and the mission and the leadership there. When those all kind of lined up together, it was like a really enriching experience for you and your experience with God. Yeah. Spiritual experience, yeah, thank you. Well, I, maybe we can keep going, but I do have a sermon to give. So, um, although you guys are really great preachers too, thank you for sharing that stuff. Um, we wanna talk about this a little bit, uh, and to do that, I wanna observe that sometimes in church spaces, what I think are at least three separate things get all lumped together, and I wanna pull them back apart and look at each one in individually for just a moment. The three things I'm talking about are generosity in general, just to be a generous person, right? Church finances, like actual church money stuff, right? And then lastly, the act of giving to the church. I think what happens is often like the church finance thing can get kind of hidden or like leveraged or manipulated. The generosity thing, like we only talk about it with regard to the church. You know, like we don't celebrate the way that you're being generous with your neighbors or generous with your time out in the world or maybe giving to other really important causes. And then like the giving to the church thing becomes sort of the assumed way that you're supposed to follow all this up. And I just wanna pull this apart for a little bit. First, let's just talk about generosity for a moment. And to do that, I wanna remind you of one of our mantras. And this comes back to what you were sharing about divine worth a little bit. So one of our core mantras is everyone an icon. And everyone an icon for us begins as a celebration of your status as a human being. To say everyone an icon is to say we believe here on the basis of what we read in scripture and our experience of one another that every human being is a bearer of the image of God. This is the first word spoken of humanity in, in the book of Genesis. It's the reason that violence is prohibited against fellow humans in the book of Genesis. We could go on and on. But I mean, this is just like an unassailable, irrevocable status. You are a bearer of the divine image. And it has nothing to do with how you show up or what you choose to give or what you are able to give, whether it's time or energy or financial resources. This is just true about you. We believe that. And one of our convictions as a community is that it has to be our starting point with one another. So when you walk in here, when you wanna live the life of South and City Church's community, like our starting point with one another is that you are a bearer of the image of God and nothing about how you show up or what you give can affect that. So that's like a really important baseline for us. And I think a lot of what we have all felt really conflicted about when it comes to church and money is that it seems like when there's money involved, we lose sight of this, right? And so the people with the money, they have more access to the leaders. Or the people with the money, they get to steer this thing because we assume that if you have more money, you have more God, and so you have more wisdom or something like that. I don't know, but it can work that way. And we laid down a baseline, put a stake in the ground with this mantra that to begin with, like we just believe that to be human is to be a bearer of the image of God and to carry around that divine worth with you. But here's the other thing I wanna observe about this mantra, and we try to make this clear whenever we teach it. It's not just a status, it's also a calling. Because to bear the image of God is, is to be invited to live out the character of God in the world, right? Scripture does this full circle with the Jesus story. So at the beginning, we start with humanity bearing the image of God. And then there's all these ways that we tell stories about how we don't bear that image very well, right? And so the world doesn't look the way you would think it would look if God had God's hands on the world. But we have had our hands on the world and we have used our power in the world for negative things rather than positive things, and we've been greedy rather than generous and all that stuff, right? And so then the Jesus story, in many ways, could just be told is like God hasn't given up on it, and so Christ arrives to bear that image and then to call us back into that, that presence in the world, which is why scripture talks of us being conformed to the image of Christ and Christ being the image of God. It's sort of repeating the story all over again, right? And if bearing the image of God is a calling to show up in a certain way in the world, I just wanna observe that like generosity is part of that way of showing up. I mean like, like through and through in, in the Bible's understanding of the nature of God is that God is relentlessly generous. That it is, it is in the very nature of God to give. Uh, how about this text, this oldie but a goodie from John three sixteen? For God so loved the world so much that he gave. I mean it's right there, you know? Or from the book of James where the writer says this of God, that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So let me remind you, I'm not talking about church giving right now, okay? Like forget, forget about church giving. I'm just saying, in general, to be a generous person is to act like God in the world. 
And to be a generous person, if, if to be human is to bear the image of God, then I would argue that to be a generous person is also to be more human in the world, more whole in the world, more like what we are here for. And you've probably felt this, haven't you? I don't care if you write big checks or small checks or if it's money that you give or time or generous words or some other act of love, but you know those moments when you feel inspired to do something that is just explicitly generous toward another human being or group of people. You ever, you ever been there? And you know that feeling in your chest that says there's something about this that is true to who I am and what I am here for, right? You feel a little bit awakened in those acts of generosity. I think it's because we are here to be like God, actually, and God is relentlessly, indiscriminately generous. So again, I'm not even talking about church yet. Just forget about that for a minute. I'm just talking about that, like, this is in the nature of God, and you can give in all sorts of ways. You can give generous words. You can give presence. I mean, like, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. I mean, to be present with someone, I mean, to be present with someone in, in this moment in time, in this era that we are living in, is a profound act of generosity, isn't it? You can give um, your bravery on behalf of another person. You could give some of your own comfort away and enter into discomfort because you speak up on behalf of those who are being downtrodden. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we can be generous in the world, and when you do it, you are being a little bit like God in the world. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a dignified thing to do, and it has nothing to do with how much money you're able to give it's just the act of giving and being generous. Now, um, that being said, like, what about giving to the church? Well, before we talk about giving to the church, I think we should talk about church finances for a moment. The next thing I want to do is I just want to give you some context for money at South Bend City Church. And this might be new information to you. Um, there's genuinely, like, no agenda in sharing this with you except to, for us to have more candor around this part of our life together, like we try to have in other parts of our life together. So I just wanna take you under the hood a little bit and give you some facts and figures. Does that sound all right? Cool, okay. Uh, first of all, this year our annual budget as a church is $765,000. Um, by the way, that's amazing. And that number didn't come out of thin air or like blind faith. The reason that's our budget is it's what people are giving right now. I and mean, that's incredible. And that money goes to pay for uh, so much of our life together, whether it's the rent here at Studebaker or the materials that kids are using in kids' rooms right now, right? Or uh, some of the partnerships that we show up for in the city or staff being available to give our best hours to the life of this church. I mean, that's where that comes from. Uh, annual budget of about 765. Uh, from what we can tell based on sort of like benchmarks around the country and based on like pre-COVID numbers, because nobody knows what's going on in church right now. Nobody knows anything about like church and attendance and money right now. We, there's no clue. But from what we can tell, like pre-COVID, we were probably like a little below par um, based on the size of our church community, what you would expect to have given. However, South Bend is way below par on income. Like we live in a city that's um, way below the national mean for household income. And so um, I, I don't take that lightly, and I think that means that we're probably pretty good right now in general. But let me show you a couple of other insights into like how it happens around here. Um, I think we're probably a church of between 750 and 1,200 people. The reason I think that is because like right now there's maybe like 300 coming on a Sunday. And from what we can tell in this weird mid-COVID, post-COVID era, average regular church attendance for people is once every four to six weeks. Before COVID, it was once every two and a half weeks. Um, but statistically, from what we can tell, like somebody who's like, yeah, like that's my church. I'm a part of that church. It's part of my life. That person on average is showing up once every four to six weeks. So if you take 300 people and that's only one-fourth of your church, that's kind of the number that you end up with, right? So with that number, that, like we are a church family of somewhere between like 750 and 1,200 people or something like that, I do think it's important to point out that in the past six months, half of all of our giving came from 16 individuals or families. That's a, that's a, a few individuals and families who are paying for um, a big bulk of what's made possible here at our church, right? Now, some of that's the way it ought to be. And here's what I mean by that. In the life of our church together, people who have more ought to help more. People who have more time ought to give more time. People who have more money ought to give more money. Like some of that makes sense, right? But I do think it's just interesting to call out the fact that like that big number I just showed you for our annual budget, like roughly half of that is coming from about 16 individuals or families. And then there's one other note that I wanna make that's also very interesting. So if you've been on our online giving page, you might know that you can give um, just one-time one gifts. You can just go online when you pay your bills or whatever and you can make a gift, right? Or you could write a check and put it in the mail. But the other thing that you can do is you can set up like automated monthly recurring giving. 
So it just kind of happens automatic every month. And almost exactly half of our monthly giving comes from automated monthly giving. And here's the other interesting stat. At least one third of our donors who give through automated recurring gifts don't live locally and aren't able to attend in person. Uh, one third of the people who are like giving just a kind of committed, regular, automated basis, as far as I know, most of them have never, ever been here. They're giving because they found the podcast and they feel connected to it, or they have some sense of our mission and calling here in South Bend, and they just want to get behind it, and they don't get anything out of it. They just believe in it enough that they're doing that. Their kids have never been in the kids' rooms that their dollars have helped furnish, right? Um, they've never been in this room where they paid the rent. They just have been showing up and giving online. Almost a third of recurring donors are doing that. I think this is helpful context. Does anybody else feel like that's just interesting? Yeah, yeah okay, so I think that's helpful to know. Um, that's a little bit about church finances. By the way, the other great way to get a look at our church finances is our annual report. We put one out every year. Um, that's our uh, attempt to give you a lot of context and transparency, not just on the money, because the story of South and City Church is way bigger than the money, but if you haven't caught those, you can always find them online. And by the way, we are always happy to answer any questions that you have about church finances. Uh, you can reach out to us, and we'd, we'd always be not only willing, but like quite happy to talk with you more if you have any kinds of questions about that stuff. But with some of that context around church finances in the background, let's come to the, like, the, where the rubber meets the road and where I think a lot of the pain is. Let's talk about giving to the church. So those uh, original letters from Paul that I talked about in the New Testament, one thing that's clear both from those letters and like from the book of Acts and from other scholarship is that at the beginning, a lot of giving was happening in the church, but for two very specific things. One, a lot of money was being given to take care of the needs in the community. The church was a community of radical belonging. And like we saw in that letter that Paul wrote where he talked about here there is no Jew or Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, one of the things happening is that in a very stratified world in the ancient world, where the rich lived in one world and the poor lived in another, in the church they were living in the same world together and those who had means took very seriously their responsibility to give to take care of the people who didn't. So widows, orphans, and others in great need, it's clear in the early church that a lot of the giving was going to take care of that. The other thing that giving was doing in the ancient world in the early church was funding what you might call the apostolic mission, which is just a fancy way of saying that there were people like Paul who were going around the world with this unheard of good news, with this announcement about what they had encountered in Christ and what it had done in them and in the people around them. And it was such good news that it was, it was forging these kinds of um, new human communities that they wanted to keep sharing this good news with other people because it was good news to share. And it's clear that some of the money that was being given was helping make that mission possible as people like Paul sailed around the ancient world. So you start there with this kind of raw, grassroots, organic community that's just sort of like bubbling up out of nowhere and people like Paul are sailing around the ancient world sharing the good news and they're giving to take care of one another. All that starts happening at the beginning and then this thing happens. The church gets a little bit institutional. I know, for some of you, it's like a bad word. It's like a dirty word, right? Like institutions. Yeah, we go from little grassroots fringe communities to an organization and an org chart and buildings and budgets and all the kinds of organizing and structures that we think of as less part of movements and more part of institutions. And of course, one of the things about institutions is they usually require some resources, right? Now, this is important to call out. I think for a lot of us, we are highly in touch with the downsides of institutions. Here's the thing. Any movement, any revolution, any liberating new idea that breaks out into the world, if you really believe in that movement, if you believe in that revolution, if you believe in that liberating idea, at some point you're probably going to have to get comfortable with some form of institutionalization because it takes institutions to preserve the gains of these movements. Like it takes order and structure and organizing to preserve the gains of movements and make those movements more accessible to more people. Here's another great example. You know we didn't always have hospitals, right? The emergence of the modern hospital, that thank God we have them, can largely be attributed to the fact that like we start with early theories of medicine that begin to like evolve and grow and progress and as they evolve and grow and progress, like the people who are doing that work realize that we're better together than we are alone. We're better when we pool expertise, when we pool resources, when we pool facilities. And that's how you end up with the institutions that we call hospitals. 
And yeah, healthcare might be kind of messy in the US right now, but I think we all would rather have hospitals than not, right? Even if sometimes they're a boondoggle. Um, institutions are essential for the preservation of, of movements that want to keep having their impact on the world. Uh, the question is, how do you have a good one and not a bad one, right? Side note, I had this recent observation. It struck me very like, deeply. Like, oh my goodness, here's the observation. I think um, conservatives are largely very afraid of big government, but they're really comfortable with big churches. And liberals are like very afraid of big churches, but they're fine with big governments. <laughs> Have you noticed that? I mean, I know I'm painting a terribly broad stroke, right? But that just shows that all of us have some qualms around like the big apparatus that grows around the thing, right? And all of us also tend to have places where we are more inclined to trust certain forms of institutionalism, especially if for one reason or another, we think that we can trust the people who are running those institutions, or if perhaps we've been on the receiving end of the benefit of those institutions, right? So I don't think any of us has a sort of a peer relationship with institutions. It tends to depend on what kind of institution we're talking about and how we're wired and what our experiences have been. Well, like I said, if you're gonna have an institution, you probably have to fund it. And like, that's just real, right? Like, South and City Church is in some ways an institution, meaning we have structure and organization and staff and budgets and hierarchies and governance and all that stuff. Like, there are some institutional components to that. And so it's not surprising that churches try to get themselves funded, but sometimes it goes so badly. I was thinking through this uh, teaching, and I remembered a song that I was taught in elementary school in church. And I wonder if anybody else has heard this song. Are you ready for it? Ananias and Sapphira got together to conspire a plot to cheat the church and get ahead. They knew God's power and did not fear it. They tried to cheat the Holy Spirit. Peter prophesied it, and they both dropped dead. Hey, God loves a cheerful giver. Give it all you got. He loves to see you laughing when you're in an awful spot. So if your odds are up against you and you don't know what to do, praise God. To praise him is a joyous thing. Oh, so we would sing that song in church. That's a story about a couple in the book of Acts who lied to the church about selling property and giving all the proceeds to the church, and then they are struck dead. And me, at the age of like five years old, was taught to sing a song about God killing people if you don't give right. And then we sing, God loves that you're full giver. Give it all you got. <laughs> yeah, and I look back on that and I think to myself, who thought that was a good idea, right? <laughs> well, apparently lots of Christians did because I grew up around lots of Christians. And so like there's that kind of weird thing. I think some of it's sweet and we're trying to tell Bible stories and impart good moral lessons. But what a terrible thing to have kids singing, right? Uh, let's move on from, um, you know, ju junior catechesis for the kids at my church and talk about a way that a lot of us have been taught to think about church and give giving. Uh, here's the word, and it came up in our, in our feedback, tithing. Uh, raise your hand if you have some familiarity with this word, to tithe. Yeah. Um, a lot of us have grown up in church spaces where this sort of the gold standard for giving or the baseline minimum was that you would tithe to your local church which means specifically to give one-tenth of your income to the local church. In fact, the word tithe just comes from like older word for tenth, right? Well, this is where like a lot of churches really hammer at home. Like this is what it means to be a faithful Christian and this is what it means to be a member and this is what you're supposed to do because they take an Old Testament concept where one-tenth of everything produced is meant to be given and they do some like hermeneutical gymnastics and they jump through some hoops and they come up with this theory that the local church is now supposed to be the, the place that receives your tithe. This is the part where I do what might be a stupid thing. I'm just gonna tell you, the idea that tithing to a local church is like mandated through good biblical interpretation is crap. <laughs> it's not true. Now hang, hang with me, we're gonna, work, we're gonna work this out. It's not true. Now all the tithers are in the room, we're like, wait, what? And I'm like, wait, was that a bad idea? But I'm trying to tell you the truth here. Um, let me take you to where, one of the Old Testament texts where we get the idea of tithing. Next slide. This is Deuteronomy 14. This is one of the actual locations in the text where a philosophy of, of tithing is built from, okay? Now notice how different this sounds than what you might have heard in like tithing to the local church. Here's what's actually said. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. First of all, we're dealing with an agrarian society, not a primarily cash-based society, right? So already it's a little bit different. And then watch this. But then eat the tithe of your grain of your new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Who eats the tithe? You do. You do, the people who produced it. 
Yeah, the, the tenth of your crop that you're supposed to tithe is actually for you to eat in a setting where you are reminded of the presence of God and the kindness of God, and you eat that meal in proximity to that setting. That's a little different, right? It keeps going. If that place is too distant, the place where they name the Lord, like the Temple Mount, if that place is too distant and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then watch this. Then exchange your tithe for silver, take the silver with you, go to the place your Lord your God will choose, and here's the reveal, next slide, and use the silver to buy whatever you like. Use your tithe to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink. What's another word for fermented drink? Liquor, yeah, beer. Yeah, it's actually strong drink, I think, in the Hebrew. And anything you wish, and then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Do not neglect the Levites living in your towns. The Levites are like the priestly class, and because they have a special vocation that they're required to offer on behalf of the community, they don't get to own their own land and produce their own things. So because they don't have their own land to produce their own crops, they're given this stuff from the rest of the people to take care of them while they take care of the people. They have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So if we're gonna try to apply this, we might say once every three years, tithe so that the pastors can have a living and then by the way, you tithers, we're gonna give it to the immigrants who need some stuff and the fatherless and the widows who live in your town, so that they may come and eat and be satisfied, and that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. That's the actual text on tithing. You're not gonna find anything in the New Testament that I've found, unless, something's, some, some, unless I've missed some strange like, twist of interpretation. You're not gonna find anything in the New Testament that says, hey people, you're supposed to take that Old Testament concept and sort of just like equate it and reconfigure it, and now it's about how you fund the local church in the year 2021. It just isn't there. And I think some who maybe have felt conflicted around the church's teaching on tithing, maybe you've had that sort of radar that tells you like something's not quite right here. It's because it isn't. It, it's like it's actually, it's not there. This is just one of the places where you've been hoodwinked. Now, by the way, I think most of the people who teach this I don't think they're so cynical. I think they inherited it from somebody who inherited it from somebody who inherited it from somebody and it sounded right. And a lot of people who have had really meaningful and profoundly um, spiritual experience th through tithing. It, it's been a, a place of uh, joyful faithfulness and sacrifice and contribution. So here's the crazy thing. I'm telling you, the idea that you need to give 10% of your income to this local church is total crap. Also, I think a lot of us should give 10% of our local income to this church. Let me back up a step. Before we talk about this church, for a lot of us in this room are like very middle class, right? Not all of us. Um, there's, there's disparity right here in the room too, but a lot of us in this room are middle class. And for those of us who are middle class, I think we better wake up and realize we are living at the wealthiest time in the history of the world in the wealthiest country with access to more than like any human being in history has ever had access to. And for, for those of us who have our needs met, who um, are able to like pay the bills, I, I just think like if, if we can't figure out how to be generous with 10% of what we have, I think that's really scary. I think that we might need to do some work, right? Um, and maybe we look at our budget and we're like, well, there's nothing left there. Well, yeah, but what about the things we've already decided to spend it on, you know? Um, a lot of us are living lives that are like really pretty luxurious in light of the world at large. And I think as a check on our own heart, it wouldn't be bad to ask like, man, couldn't I figure out how to reconfigure my life a little bit to give 10% of that away? And I'm, again, I'm not even talking about the church right now. First of all, I'm just talking about giving in general. I think um, a lot of us have a lot to tap into in a life of generosity that we haven't figured out before. And I think it would be a way of growing up and bearing that image in the world, right? Let me say again, there are other ways of being generous, time, heart, your, your own presence in somebody else's life, your generous words. There are other ways of being generous too. But money is a part of being generous. And a lot of us, I think, um, could grow up a little bit in that way. And then there's the idea, well, then would you give that to South and City Church? I'm not gonna pull any guilt levers here. 
I just think that it's helpful to have concrete places where we actually show up with our convictions and where we actually show up for one another. And when a local church is at its best, it's a really good place to do that, right? Um, now, if you're like giving to some great local cause and you hear this sermon and you take the money away from them to give it to us, I don't know if I would feel great about that. So, like there were other really good things to give to. But for, for many of us in this community, not all of us, but for many of us in this community, we would say that like what we believe about this thing is that this is the one place where we explicitly show up together for that, that thing that Paul was writing about, for the love of God known in sister and brother, for the unfathomable riches of God. Not that those are only here, but this is the one place where we actually show up to like focus on it and grow into it and learn about it. Um, this is one place I know of where we are striving for that vision of radical human belonging that Paul talked about, where there's no Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, that like somehow the lines of division are being erased in this community and we are learning how to belong to one another. And that feels to me like the kind of thing that's worthy of some contribution for those of us who have the means to do so. So this is my way of saying like, I can't tell you that God requires you to tithe to Southland City Church because as far as I can tell, he, he doesn't. And if you've been told that, you've been lied to. But it's also my way of saying, if I can just look, look you in the eyes like your, your friend or your pastor and say, I don't think it'd be a bad thing to do. And I think this is one great place to invest. And I think for a lot of us, um, that might be a way of aligning our feelings about this community with our actions. Does that make sense? Now, um, I think one reason a lot of us are wary of this is we've, it's just so easy for the institution to not have integrity. It's just easy for the institution to not have integrity. And I just want to talk to you for a moment about a couple of the ways that we've been thinking about that as a church, uh, really from the beginning. Um, so it's not uncommon for somebody to stand on this stage or another stage of the church and preach at people, right? And to, to bring some kind of prescription about something, right? Like, you shouldn't do this, or you should do this, or you should care about this, or you should give to this, or you should take time off for this, right? Here's one example. Like, we would often at Southland City Church say that, like, life comes in seasons, and you need seasons for rest. That's, or that's fields, not factories on the wall. You are not made to produce 24-7, 365. You can't be on every day. You can't be on every week. Sabbath is a thing. We need it. And how many churches do we know that never Sabbath as a church? Right? So one of the like, litmus tests that we try to run ourselves through is, are there things that we are preaching and saying about like, individual behavior or life with God that we've never tried to live up to as a community? And if so, let's fix that. Right? This is why, for example, you'll notice that throughout the year there are weeks where we shut down Southland City Church and we don't have any gatherings. It's not because we're trying to be lazy. It's because we're trying to make sure that this thing collectively lives in integrity with the kind of individual vision that we are giving one another. Same goes with money. We don't want to be the kind of church that, like, says you should give to this thing, but then doesn't give away. Because then the community, the family, isn't living in integrity with the, with the individual lives that we were talking about, right? So I, I just want to draw your attention to this. And this is not meant to be triumphalistic or, like, to pat ourselves on the back. It's meant to be transparent, but to point out to you a way that we are trying to make sure that this thing has integrity um, as it sort of grows forward into its future. Uh, two ways that we've tried in particular recently to, to be a generous community and not just ask you to be generous to this, right? Uh, the first is our care fund that we launched during COVID. And this blows my mind that during COVID when a lot of people were walking through a lot of economic insecurity, so far $20,601 have been given to the care fund. And that's money that we get to use to take care of people who can't make rent in our church family. That's money that we use to like show up and provide meals for people who don't have the bandwidth to make meals for themselves. People who are in crisis moments, who through like a, a, a cash intervention could be really helped through the crisis, are able to access this. And any of you, by the way, who are in a crisis moment and need that kind of care, you can email us right now, care at stopandstudychurch.com, and we have money sitting there that people have given so that we can give it away. And I think that's a little bit of what we want to be, right? Uh, the other way that we've been trying to live this out is in our partnership with organizations here in the city. So uh, in the last few years, we've just kind of made direct cash gifts to partners both locally and globally. That includes Transformation Ministries, who does really great work with mentoring youth right here in South Bend. South Bend Community School Corporation's restorative justice work, we were able to fund some of that training. World Vision, which is a, a very high caliber global nonprofit, we've given a bunch of money to World Vision because they are on the ground in places like the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon outside Syria, tending to the lives of thousands of Syrian refugees. 
the Telos group is a group that we partner with that's also gonna educate us, but Telos is out there helping form communities of peacemakers where they find intractable conflict. Uh, when Nashville was ripped with tornadoes, we were able to send cash to two partner churches in Nashville so that they could use that money to help their neighbors rebuild. Hope Ministries, uh, our neighbors and, and friends and family right here in the neighborhood, we love getting to partner with Hope. Uh, they're doing really good work. 100 Black Men of South Bend, last summer when we were trying to put our money where our mouth was in terms of our response to racial injustice, we wanted to not just like read books and talk about it, we wanted to give toward it, and so we made a gift to 100 Black Men of South Bend who's invested in the benefit and the well-being of black men right here in our city as they grow up. And then the Color Park Church Food Pantry, sister church right here in the city who has had a, a wonderful food pantry since before COVID, but which saw the needs dramatically escalate during COVID. We were able to fund a bunch of food that they bought. And in our brief life as a church, we've given out $191,987 to other organizations. Now that's not meant to be triumphalistic, but I think you deserve to know. I, I think I should put that in front of you because what, what I'm trying to tell you is we want to have integrity as a community. We don't want to just be like the Dead Sea where we expect it all to come in and it just like stays here, right? If we're asking one another to be generous people, we want to be a generous family, and these are some of the ways that we've been trying to do this. Now, one other note of context, and this speaks to the blessings that we've received here at South and City Church, and the note is this. In church planting world, typically in the West, a church plant, like a brand new church like we used to be, like just a little minute ago, like a church plant is usually considered a mission for the first three years. And what we mean by that is that when a new church gets up, up, and, up and running, it's not assumed that it will be able to support itself for the first three years. It's actually assumed that it will need to be the recipient of support dollars coming from other organizations and churches because it usually takes that long for a new church to just sort of get up and be sustainable on its own. Well, in our, so our first Sunday was a little over four years ago. And we've been able to do this from basically the beginning. And that's not like, you know, patting ourselves on the back, but that is like a huge uh, heart of gratitude that we have had what we have needed. And because we've had what we have needed, we've been able to do things like this, and we wanna do more things like this. And I just think um, we should recognize that, that we're um, enjoying like remarkable blessings as a church community. And it's because people have shown up and given their time and their wisdom and their advice, their energy. They've leveraged their relationships to help us build partnerships. And it's because so many people have given so much that we get to do things like this, and we wanna keep doing things like this. Um, I know I'm running a little bit long. I promise we're wrapping it up. When we got this thing going, and I would describe to people our vision for South and City Church, so many people, especially people who have church experience, would kindly um, and subtly say things to me like, wait, you're gonna do what? Oh, that's cute. It's, you know, it's not gonna work, right? I would describe, for example, the, the idea that we would wanna have a church where we can actually affirm doubt and questions and say, hey, that might be a sign that you are awake and alive. It may not be a weakness of your faith. It might be a sign that you are moving and growing, that you are doubting all of this. And, you know, the kind of, like, concerned whisper in my ear was like, you know that's not gonna work, right? Like, you, you can't do that. You gotta tell people what to believe and, and why they should believe it and just keep them locked in. And we just, we're like, well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> um, another way that people told me, like, you know you can't do that, right, uh, would be that to name injustice explicitly, whether it's racial injustice or any other form, to name it explicitly, the, the implication was, you know if you do that, it's just gonna politicize your church, it's just gonna become a bunch of like one party people and it's not gonna be the church, it's just gonna be like a cover for a political cause, right? I'd say, well I guess I don't know, I never tried it before, but uh, it sure seems like if the church is anything, it has to be a place where the truth is told. So we gotta try it and see what happens. And so far, like, these are tensions that we carry, but I think we continue to find a way to be a church while we talk about those things. Here's another one. Um, Jay, if you make explicit South and City Church's affirmation and inclusion of LGBTQ people, it will be a slippery slope and this thing's just gonna run off the rails. Before you know it, it'll be like anything goes and like there'll be no heart for like holiness or, or growing in God. And I would just say that some of the holiest experiences I have in this community are with the LGBTQ members of this community who teach me more about following Christ than I've learned from many others. And so like, we just keep having these things where it's people like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And I'm kinda like, I wanna try. <laughs> and so when it comes to the finances, it's been similar. It's like, well, you know, you're not gonna be able to fund that thing forever unless you hype it up, right? Like, th th by the way, I think there are strategies for donor development that are appropriate and have integrity. And then there are strategies that aren't and don't. 
But the sort of subtle implication is that you're going to have to like cross those lines and do those things that all the other churches do because that's how they pay their bills. And if you want to keep paying your bills, you're going to have to do those things. And we're not going to do those things. And like, frankly, there's a word for everything I just described for you, and the word is cynicism. And my problem with that is if the church becomes a bastion of cynicism, if the church becomes a place where we just play out our cynicism, we should all quit and go home because that's not what this is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place of faith and hope. And what I mean by those things is not that you sign every line on the doctrinal statement, but rather there's that thing within you that continues to find a capacity to trust one another in God for the best things. That there are new possibilities that can be created here that we wouldn't have thought that we would see without something like a miracle happening, and I'm still banking on these miracles. I'm still banking on South and City Church being a place where we can be what we are supposed to be and do what we are supposed to do in the world without manipulating you. I'm banking on the fact that you all will be the way you have been on this issue, the way you've been on other issues, which is on other things. We said, we're gonna talk to you like adults. We're gonna tell you the truth. We're just gonna put things out there and and let you wrestle with it and decide what you wanna do with it. And I'm banking that on this issue, that's gonna work the way it's worked on other issues. And it may not mean that we have the fanciest church. We may not have all the bells and whistles that cost a lot of money, but I'm banking on the fact that we will continue to have what we need because we have had what we've needed. And that is a, a miracle in my mind. And you all, who show up, whether with time or money or energy, you just continue to inspire me with that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm banking on South and City Church being what she has been. And on the promise of this community continuing to unfold without us having to pull those levers and manipulate you. And um, that brings me to two commitments. One, we're going to do a better job of just, like, telling you straight what's up. And I, again, I apologize for the fact that we've been so afraid of doing this badly that we haven't done it at all. And so we're going to do better at that. And then one specific way that you can look forward to us trying to be better at that, it's really simple. But going forward, we're gonna give you quarterly updates on the money. Like, I just think you ought to know every quarter, like, how's it going? Where's the budget at? What have we spent? What's the giving looking like? We're not gonna be doing that to, like, manipulate you, but it's not fair to ask you to be stakeholders in this community and then not give you the information you need that a stakeholder deserves. Uh, The next iteration of that quarterly update will actually be our next annual report. And so look forward to that just after the first of the year where we're gonna give you a fresh update on how we've stewarded not just your money, but your time and your energy and the story that's been told through this very strange year of church. That'll be the next time we do that. All right, an image and then I promise we're done. Poor kids ministry, I'm sorry. All right, an image and then we're done. Let me put this on the screen. If you can't quite make it out, I know it's a little fuzzy. There's clouds up top and the earth below and there's a, a man hanging there in the middle with a hook pulling the earth up and tethers sort of pulling the clouds down. Uh, It's made by an artist couple named Robert and Shana Park Harrison. I first discovered this image because it was tattooed on the arm of a friend of mine, and then he showed me the original online. And the minute I saw it, I was so moved. And I think why I was moved by it is I'm the guy that always wants to be in the clouds. I would just like it if we could cut that tether and live up there in the atmosphere. To me, that's like where all the theology lives and all the mysticism lives and all the good feelings live, right? And I keep discovering that's not actually how it works. In my personal life, like it's not that I get to kind of cut tether and go up into the sky, but rather that like living in the tension between my best aspirations and my greatest moments of faith, alongside like the nitty gritty, painful, complicated, messy realities of everyday life, that's actually where all the action is, right? You have felt this, it's the case in your marriage. Maybe you got married thinking it would be all in the clouds, and it was until you got home and you found out you were expecting the other person to do the dishes, right? And some of you thought that parenting would be all up in the clouds. And there's that moment every day when you look your kids in the eye and you are caught up in the wonder of who they are. And then there's the other 23 hours and 45 minutes of the day (laughs) where it's earthy, right? And, And practical and real. And this is also the case of church, which is why I think Paul writes letters to the church that include these mountaintop statements about the love of God and the experience of Christ. And two paragraphs later, he's like, hey, by the way, we gotta pay the bills. Because that's actually how it works in faith and life. And if we don't do that here, then we're doing each other a disservice. Because if you come in here and we act like, like the nitty gritty everyday realities aren't part of how this works, then we might make you afraid of those nitty gritty earthy realities when you go back home. And if I want anything for us, it's that when you go back home into the everyday messy reality of bills and budgets and schedules and soccer practice and fights in your marriage and like trying to make it work, when you go back home to all of that earthiness I hope you know that that's precisely where you can hope to meet God. And we need to do things around here in this church community that have integrity with that conviction and vision. So every once in a while, that might mean we have to talk about things like buildings and dollars. 
And I promise you we're going to try to do it as high integrity and as well as we can. Good? Good. All right. That's it. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Thank you for sitting through a very long sermon. To all newcomers, I promise it's not like this most weeks. Not only do I not preach this long, but the content's much better. That being said, uh, may you know that like in the earthy, gritty, everyday realities of your life is where God is waiting to meet you. It's in the budgets and in the making the bed and figuring out who's going to do the dishes, the, the chores, the everyday pieces of your life that God is waiting to meet you. And may we remember that that's the case here too. We are in the middle of a living, breathing experiment called a church. And so we will look for God in mountaintop moments of inspiration and songs that move us and prayers that heal us. And we will look for God in the everyday work of building this community together and doing whatever we need to do to live up to the things that we've been called to. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you soon.